Well, Ruby, thank you very much for that lovely reading. And uh, I think I ought to compliment the pianist on landing the chords in that last song. There was a certain amount of nervousness in our home in practice, but I thought she did very well. Anyway, um, please do have your Bible open at the passage that Ruby read for us, Matthew 6, 1 to 18, and uh, I'm going to ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do thank you for your many kindnesses to us, and we pray that out of your kindness, you would help us to see into your word this morning, uh, to see things that are precious and, and timely and helpful and strengthening and convicting. And we ask that you would not only help us to see these things, but also to put them into practice. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Good, well, uh, let me ask you, um, how is your heart this morning? Uh, In South Africa, uh, 210 people die from heart disease every day. It's quite a statistic, isn't it? It's amongst the uh, top three causes of death in sub-Saharan Africa. And if we don't actually die from it ourselves, we are pretty certain to know someone who will. And uh, what makes it so deadly is not that the doctors don't know what causes it or don't know how to treat it. It is that most people don't think about the health of their heart until it is already too late. So clearly, your heart matters very much indeed, and we would all be wise to pay careful attention to it. And if that is true of our physical hearts, it is also true that we need to take great care of our spiritual hearts as well. And just as a a physical heart problem can cause physical death, in exactly the same way a spiritual heart problem can cause spiritual death. And I start with this because the whole focus of Matthew chapter 6 is on the heart. Uh, In case you're new to us or you've been away for a few weeks, you need to know that this chapter comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. And Jesus is teaching us what life is like in the kingdom of God. And as we come into chapter 6, there's a sudden change of emphasis in the teaching of Jesus. Because Jesus is now not so concerned about what we do, but rather why we do it. See, it's sadly all too too true that it's possible for us to do all the right things and yet still come under the righteous condemnation of the Lord Jesus. And in this chapter we'll find that Jesus is, as it were, shining the searchlight of his word onto our motives. He's concerned with our hearts. And uh, in these 18 verses we're introduced to three types of people. The interesting thing is that outwardly they're doing exactly the same things. 
by looking at them, you can't tell them apart. And yet only one of the character types in the chapter gets it right. Who are these people? Well, there's the hypocrite, uh, there's the pagan, and there's the child of God. As I say, on the outside they appear to be identical, but inside their hearts couldn't be more different. What I want us to do this morning is have a, a look at a brief portrait of each one, And as we look at these portraits, we ought to be asking ourselves, which one is most like me? We'll begin with the hypocrite. He gets that most of the verses, so we'll spend most of our time on him. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, be careful, excuse me, not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now that is the general principle. Right at the start, the focus is on our motives. And you see that Jesus gives us a warning. He says, be careful. You see, we can be known for being extremely religious. We might attend religious meetings and religious activities of different kinds. They might take up a great deal of our time. And Jesus is asking straight off the bat, all of those things that you do, all of those religious activities like going to church, uh, studying at George Whitfield College, attending the prayer meetings, going to Young Adults Burger Night, why are you doing them? Are you doing them to please other people, to impress them? Is that the reason? Because if that is the reason... God is not impressed. You'll get no reward from him. And then having stated the general principle, Jesus moves on to apply it to the three main spiritual disciplines that were standard practice in the religious life of those days. Namely, giving, praying, and fasting. And in each case, he's asking the same question, Why are you doing those things? What's your motive? Are you trying to gain approval from other people? Or is what you do directed towards Almighty God? Now giving comes first in verse 2. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honoured by men, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. Some of you know that the word hypocrite uh, comes from a Greek word for an actor. So the hypocrite is, as it were, playing a part. Uh, He or she is, is wearing a disguise. And religious hypocrisy comes in various different forms. Uh, Sometimes the hypocrite is pretending to do something he's not actually doing. Uh, So, for example, he says he's really, really concerned about the problem of theft in South Africa. I guess we're all concerned about that. But this man uh, fiddles his expenses at work and he steals when other people aren't looking. So that's one form of hypocrisy. But there's a different kind, which is the kind that Jesus speaks about here. 
And here we have a hypocrite who does all the right things. But there's a pretense inside him. He gives money, he makes out that he's really concerned about the poor, but the truth is he's only concerned about his reputation. And that's why he's giving. And Jesus gives us uh, a portrait of a rather pompous Pharisee. There he is, he's making his way through the temple to present his gift for the needy. And uh, in verse 2, rather interestingly, Jesus implies that he announces his arrival with trumpets. Now, I've been thinking about that. I wondered if he'd hired a brass band to sort of come into the temple before him. But I discovered this week something I didn't know before, which is that the offering chests in the temple uh, had a trumpet-shaped device on top of them. Uh, And they were known as trumpet chests. Uh, So they had a wide opening at the top for people to drop their money in, but then that wide opening became a sort of narrow, winding funnel, and eventually your coin would drop into the chest underneath. The idea was to stop the thief from sticking their hand into the collection and helping themselves. So when Jesus talks about uh, people who announce their giving with trumpets, he's not thinking of a brass band, he's talking about people tossing their coins into the trumpet opening in a very noisy and obvious way to let people know how generous they are. Now I guess you and I are used to seeing photographs on social media of some wealthy donor giving a marvellously large cheque to a charity. He's absolutely delighted to have all the publicity. Or what about some of those posters that you occasionally see in the shopping malls around Cape Town uh, telling us how much money some particular store or shopping chain has given to a particular cause? PR's marvellous. It's terrific for the share price. But actually, if you read the small print, the amount of money they give very often is pretty small in comparison to their profits. But then let's come closer to home. What about our own hearts? Maybe in a church like ours, uh, being the, the big donor to the church budget, maybe that's not our problem. But what about our private giving? to people closer to home. The friend who needs money for medicine, uh, the family member who's struggling to make ends meet, the student who needs to buy books. Uh, We might give them money. We might feed them. We might make them alone. And those are all, by themselves, really good things to be doing. Excellent. But why are we doing it? Why really are we doing it? And a good place to start when we ask that question is to ask the question, who do I tell? Why do I tell them? Do they really need to know? Do we want them to be impressed? Those are searching questions. And the point is, you see, that our friends might well be impressed. God isn't. Jesus says in verse 2, I tell you the truth, they received their reward in full. The hypocrite, you see, is seeking the praise of men, and he gets it. 
but that is all he gets. It's no praise from God. And we might be able to fool other people, but we can't fool him. God sees through hypocrisy every time. And the disciples of Jesus are not to be hypocrites. Instead, verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, can you see the principle? The principle is secret giving. It's between me and God. And uh, even when no one else knows what I've given, you know, it's still possible, isn't, isn't it, for there to be a kind of secret giving that's almost self-congratulatory. I sort of glow with pride privately at how generous I've been. And that's why Jesus says... Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying don't think about your giving. It is absolutely right to plan your giving for whatever cause, and if you're in a position to do it, I hope that you do. But once we've finally decided what we're going to give, and we've set up the EFT in our bank account, or we put the cash into the collection bag, we're to forget about it. And we're not to look for praise from anybody, even from ourselves. We're not to be hypocrites in our giving. Nor are we to be hypocrites in our praying. Because Jesus continues in verse 5, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. Notice the pattern. Have a look at the Bible. In verse 2, the hypocrite gives to be honoured by men. And in verse 5, He prays to be seen by men. Now, of course, in his words, if we're listening in, he's addressing his words to God. But in his heart, he's actually speaking to the people around him. In those days, uh, each week, a different person would be invited to lead prayers in the synagogue. What a marvellous opportunity for a hypocrite an audience. And during certain religious festivals, what would happen is that the the temple trumpets would blow to signal that people should stop whatever they were doing and should should start praying. Now again, that provided an absolutely marvellous opportunity for the hypocrite because he could time his route to work uh, to make sure that he was standing at the most visible spot when the trumpet sounded. And of course, a street corner, if you think about it, is absolutely perfect because you could be seen by two streets full of people. And how easy it is in our own prayer meetings to frame our prayers 
to impress other people rather than speaking to God. We want other people to be impressed. We want them to think, wow, I wish I could pray like him. Uh, He must know his Bible backwards to be able to pray all those memory verses. He is just so spiritual. An American pastor once described a a fine-sounding but very lengthy prayer as the most eloquent prayer ever prayed to a Boston audience. And of course that was right. No doubt it was offered to a Boston audience, but not to a heavenly audience. And Jesus says if we pray like that, yes we're going to get what we're looking for, we'll get our reward, we'll get the admiration of other people, but that's all we'll get. God won't hear. And God won't answer. But you see, we're to be different. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Rather interesting, again, it's a new discovery for me this week. The word translated room is the word for a storeroom. And uh, it was private, probably didn't have a window, and it might even have, have had a padlock or a lock of some kind on it. Now, of course, don't misunderstand, Jesus is not saying, let's cancel the monthly prayer meeting. He's not saying we should never pray in public, any more than he's saying, that all of us should uh, go into the corner cupboard at home and close the door and pray in the darkness. Jesus is using picture language to convey a truth, that our prayer life must be directed to God. It's between us and him. And so one writer invites us to challenge ourselves with a number of searching questions. Number one, do I pray more frequently and more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I'm in public? Great question. Question two, do I love the secret place of prayer? Meaning when no one can see me. Is my public praying the overflow of my private praying? And friends, the point is that if the answers to those questions are not yes, then I fail the test and I fall under the condemnation of Jesus because there's hypocrisy in my heart. I'm going to come back to verses 7 to 15 in a moment, but first let's complete this this portrait of the hypocrite in verse 16 and following. Because here we have the hypocrite fasting. When you fast, says Jesus, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men their fasting. I tell you the truth, they receive their reward in full. It was expected in those days that Jews would fast at certain times during the year, and Jesus assumed that his own followers would do the same. There are a number of examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of believers abstaining from food for a period of time. Uh, Sometimes as a mark of repentance, 
sometimes so as to be able to focus completely on prayer. Now, I should say the Bible does not command Christians to fast, but the assumption is there that it is a helpful spiritual discipline. And once again, in these verses, the focus is on our motives. When we put ourselves through uh, some discomfort, such as fasting or maybe a very extended time of prayer, it really is tempting, isn't it, for us to want other people to know about it. Uh, And there are lots of different and rather subtle ways of doing it. Uh, Just dropping it into conversation, perhaps, that we have our quiet time when everybody else is fast asleep. Uh, Or perhaps making sure that we look really, really tired because we've been up such a long time. It's easy to sort of slip into that mindset, isn't it? And Jesus says, no. We're to keep such things hidden. Verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there's the hypocrite. He's concerned about others rather than his heavenly Father. And, of course, I would be surprised if all of us can't see just something of ourselves in the portrait of the hypocrite. But let's move on to the second portrait in the gallery, uh, which is the pagan. Now, we won't spend too long on him because he only gets two verses. Let me read verse 7 for us again. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, once again, this man or this woman thinks that they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it in the wrong way. Uh, In Jesus' day, the pagans were Gentiles, meaning everybody who wasn't a Jew. And often, Gentiles were very religious indeed. Um, It's clear from verse 7 that the pagan prays. But his prayers reveal the lack of a real relationship with God. He knows that God is out there somewhere, but he's not quite sure where, and he's not sure where he stands in relation to him. And the pagan's religion is an attempt to earn God's favour. And that, of course, is always the mark of pagan religion. And there is plenty of it in churches today. Funnily enough, the the experts, the theologians, describe paganism as the English disease. Apparently, me and my fellow countrymen are particularly susceptible to paganism, which is... Rather than trusting in God's kindness and grace, the pagan tries to drag favours out of a reluctant God. Now think about this. You see, true Christianity begins in heaven, doesn't it? With God reaching down a hand of love and offering, as it were, to drag us up to him. 
It's all of grace. And that's what God does for us through his son, the Lord Jesus. Whereas pagan religion begins here on planet Earth with me desperately trying to bring God down to me and twist his arm and persuade him to like me because of the things that I do. That's paganism. And it begins with sinful humanity and it begins with what I think I can do to get myself into God's good books. And you can see it in the pagan's prayer. He he babbles on, Jesus says, piling on the words. And he thinks that the more that he says, the more likely it is that this distant, indifferent God might be nudged into listening to him. So if you like, his prayer is actually more of a battering ram, isn't it? Trying to break down the the solid wall of God's reluctance to hear him. And it's a mechanical process which places the pagan's confidence not in the God to whom he's praying, but in the prayers themselves. He thinks, you know, I've just prayed a prayer from the prayer book. Or, I've prayed this prayer 200 times. God's got to listen to me now. So it's mechanical praying. And how different that is from the prayer that Jesus describes in this chapter. So here's the nugget, the big nugget for the morning. Uh, I wonder if you noticed how often the word Father appears in these verses. It's actually ten times. Highly significant. Because the antidote to hypocrisy and paganism is a right understanding of who God is. What is it that causes hypocrisy? Why is it that in our religious duties we're more concerned about other people and what they might think of us than about God in heaven? Why is that? It's because we have a wrong view of God. We perhaps think of him as being far away and distant, a sort of remote being who's not really terribly interested in me and the things that I'm doing. And that is why Jesus, you'll notice, stresses, just notice this, he stresses that the unseen Father sees what we do and will reward us. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now you'll find that phrase, exactly the same phrase, look at it, again at the end of verse 6. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And you find it a third time at the end of verse 18. Now, Jesus knows that we need to be reminded that there is a God who loves us and cares. And he knows he needs to remind us because we so quickly forget it. I mean, after all, we can't see him. So we're tempted to wonder whether he can really see us. And if he can't see us, well, I mean, is it really worth going to all the effort of giving and praying and fasting? I mean, what's the point? 
Now you see, if that's the way that I think about God, I will do one of two things. Either I will stop giving and praying and fasting, or even going to church, or I will continue to do those things, but my motivation will change. And I won't direct my activities towards God anymore. No, I'll be much more concerned about impressing all of you. I'll do my acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And at least that way, I can be sure of getting some kind of a return for my effort. Now friends, that explains, doesn't it, why so much religion is done for show. And the root cause of it is that we don't understand properly who God is. And that's why in uh, each of the three sections in our passage, Jesus particularly stresses that God is not distant and uncaring. He's our Father and he's passionately interested in everything that we do. He sees what is done in secret. And Jesus uh, prescribes the cure for the pagan view of God in verse 8. Have a look at it. Can we all see verse 8 in our Bibles? Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What a verse. Martin Luther said that prayer is not overcoming the reluctance of God. It is laying hold of God's willingness. Now don't misunderstand, Jesus is not saying that your father knows what you need so you don't need to pray. Jesus is not saying that. God chooses to work through answering our prayers. We don't understand precisely why that is, but that is God's way. It might be because that way of working builds the relationship between the Christian and our Father in Heaven. I mean, those of you who are parents, think about it. If you don't teach your children to ask you for the things that they need, and you just give them to them instead, well, the relationship is going to be pretty shallow, isn't it? But if instead you teach them to ask you for the things that they need, preferably saying please first, and then saying thank you afterwards, well, the relationship grows, because you're teaching them dependence, and you're teaching them gratitude. Perhaps that's why God has chosen to work in this way. I mean, there could be other reasons as well, but that's a good one. But let's move on to our third portrait, the final one. So we've seen the hypocrite. He has this distant view of God who's much too far away to care, and so he's directing all of his energies on getting a response from you and me. And we've seen the portrait of the pagan, who uses his spiritual disciplines rather like a battering ram to get favours out of a reluctant God. But here's the third portrait, the child of God. In verse 9, 
Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And just notice how he begins. Our Father. I'm told that the Muslims have 99 different names for God. Not one of them is Father. So, friends, this is the unique privilege of Christians. Lyndon Johnson was President of the United States in the 1960s, and um, in his first State of the Union address, he said this. He said, God made all men, not some men. Yep, so far, good marks. Uh, He'd get into GWC for saying that. But then he went on, therefore all men are children of God, not some men. Not true. I mean, of course, all men and women are related to God because he made us and we are made in his image. But when the New Testament talks about God's children, almost exclusively, it talks about people who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And in the New Testament... It's only Christians who are encouraged to address God as Father. If you like, it is God's Christian name. And it is a unique privilege. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. What we actually deserve is to be totally separated from God forever. But because of his mercy and because of the death of his Son, We can be forgiven and we can come to the God of the universe and we can call him Abba, Father. And you see, it's very interesting to me that when Jesus teaches about prayer, this is the main subject. Now there are lots of books on prayer and they have lots to say about the technique of prayer your bodily posture in prayer and the phrases that may or may not be appropriate. But when Jesus teaches on prayer, the main topic of his teaching is about who we're speaking to. Because the key to prayer is to know whom we're addressing. And a wrong view of God leads to the wrong kind of prayer. I wonder if you've thought about that. If you think of God as far away and distant, you will just end up praying to one another. If you think God is not on your side, not really interested in you, your prayers will be like a battering ram. But right prayer comes from a right understanding of who God is. Our Father. And of course, as you know, what follows has come down to us to be called the Lord's Prayer. And this is the kind of prayer that we will pray if we know God as Father. Now, we haven't got time to look at it in enormous detail this morning, but I want to suggest a few useful headings to help you navigate through it. Notice it begins with a concern for God. So there are six requests in the prayer, and the first three are all concerned with him. Now, think about it. If I have a low view of God as distant and far away, or if I feel that God is against me, 
then quite frankly I'm not going to be too bothered with his interests, am I? I'll have no reason to because I don't really care about him. He doesn't care about me. But you see, it is instantly and immediately different when I begin to grasp God's love for me as Father. Because once I grasp his love for me, I'll love him too. And it'll hurt me when other people just ignore him or just use his name as a swear word. And so I will pray, hallowed be your name. May your name be honoured. And it will grieve me that so few people have trusted in Christ and submitted to him. So I will pray, your kingdom come. And it will upset me when both I and other people keep on disobeying him. So I'll pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, I think that prayer probably applies to all of those first three petitions. Because it's pointing to the future, isn't it? Because if you think about it, it's only when Jesus Christ returns that these things will happen perfectly on earth as they are in heaven. And so when I pray these things, I'm not just praying for the present, I'm actually praying for the return of the Lord Jesus. So it's a very, very big prayer, isn't it? And I wonder if our prayers start like this. Because instinctively, I'm concerned for my name, thanks very much. I want people to admire me. Instinctively, I'm concerned for my kingdom. I want to build up my own sphere of influence, my own little empire. And instinctively, I'm concerned for my will. I want to get what I want. But you see, if I know God as my Father, I will be concerned, above all, for his name, and for his kingdom, and for his will, not my own. But the Lord's Prayer doesn't stop there. Our Father loves us. He longs to meet our needs. And nothing, nothing, in our lives, is outside his sphere of control. And that's why I pray, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. I'm asking God to supply my basic needs, the necessities of life. Because we are actually to be dependent on him for everything. We are dependent on him for everything. So we need to thank him for his provision in the past and pray that it will continue into the future. We're to pray about our physical needs and we are to pray for our spiritual needs as well. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Well, that's our sins. And you see, our spiritual life is as dependent on forgiveness as our physical life is dependent on food. We're to praise God for providing for our need in Christ and we are to continue trusting him for forgiveness. And dear brothers and sisters, as we do that, we need to make absolutely sure that we're forgiving others because if we don't, that is a sign we've never been forgiven ourselves. 
And then finally, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. It's just a reminder that we are weak, Satan is strong, and we need to pray that God would spare us from temptation, from times of testing that are beyond our ability to endure, to give us the strength we need to resist those things around us that are wrong. It is a wonderful prayer. And when it is prayed sincerely, this is the prayer of a true child of God to his or her heavenly Father. But my question is, is it the kind of prayer that you pray? Jesus does not want any of us to leave church this morning content in a lifeless religious routine. He's actually forcing all of us this morning to examine our hearts. So how is your heart? How's my heart? See, so much of our religion is hypocrisy. It's done to impress other people or paganism, a rather pathetic attempt to earn God's favour. We've all done it. But friends, we need to sort our hearts out. And the key to that is to remember who God is. Constantly reminding ourselves that he's not distant and far away, and he's not against us. He is our Father. And the more we get that crystal clear in our minds the more our spirituality, the more our religion will flow out of hearts that are right with him. That would be a wonderful thing to be praying about this week, wouldn't it? Let's pray now. Please forgive us when we take it for granted that we can address you in that intimate way. Help us never to forget the wonder of that truth. Help us to live in the light of it, concerned not about what others are going to think, but concerned about our relationship with you. And may everything that we do flow out from all that you have first done for us in Christ. For it is in his name that we ask it. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen indeed.